Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Steele Brand. He's assistant professor of history at the King's College in New York City, and for our purposes, more importantly, author of Killing for the Republic, Citizen Soldiers and the Roman Way of War, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, September 2019. Steele, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is a, a large and complex book. And it's about uh, the Army of the Roman Republic. It's also, in many ways, about you <laughs> and your experience. Uh, it um, has a very interesting connection to your lived experience, the way that I think very few historians or his- histories do. Uh, you're not, you won't deny that. Um, it also is about uh, civic republicanism, classical republicanism. Um, through the period of the American founding. So we're going to mm-hmm. sort of reverse this. We'll start chronologically rather than thematically as you did in the book. This is a topic that we've covered at least uh, related to this. We've we've discussed in way back in episode 11, uh, Barry Strauss and the death of Caesar. Um, he discussed the, the last decades of the Republic. And then more recently, episode 93, we talked to Ed Watts about his book, Mortal Republic. Um, like them, you are concerned with uh, the end of the Republic, but you give a lot more attention to the beginnings of the Republic and the creation of the Roman citizen soldier. So let's start with the, the concept of the citizen soldier and why it's so important to the Republic, to the Roman Republic, and you would argue to republics more generally. Um, first of all, you make a distinction between the citizen soldier and the soldier citizen. What is that? Right. So in the ancient world, you've got, broadly speaking, this group of martial republics that develop. Things, places that we usually think about, Rome, Athens, Sparta, they have this shared belief, the political power, military service, these the two things should be linked. Now, the soldier-citizen as a concept, this is something that Sparta used. Mm -hmm. They trained their soldiers full-time. Other people farmed for them. The small group of soldiers are the ones who are their citizens. Uh, We're familiar with that today because... We think of soldiers as someone, oh, yeah, they're a soldier. That's their full-time job. That's what they do. You know, I'm a businessman, or I do this, or I do that, and they go fight. The other idea, and uh, this is the Roman idea and the Athenian idea to uh, a large extent, and that's also the early American idea, is the citizen soldier. It's, uh, I've got a different job. I'm a, a butcher, or I'm a baker, or a computer software engineer, and then I will serve on the side, but that's part-time. It, it takes me away. If I go fight in a war, that takes me away from what my job is. Well, in the ancient world, all these guys are farmers. And so in Rome, I think they're the ones who perfect the idea of the citizen soldier uh, more than any other people group or any other republic, including Athens in the ancient world. And uh, that idea is picked up on by the Americans, and they think, we want to be like Rome. And so this is where the idea of the Minuteman comes from. He does something else. He's a farmer Mm. or he works in the town. But we're going to ask him to leave his his farm for just a little bit and go defend his republic and then come back to his peacetime life. 
and we have to contrast this with, say, the in this period of um, the Hellenic period when Rome is growing in power at the time of Alexander the Great. Uh, when that I'm, my dates are, you know, I'm an early American historian, so this my dates are a little fuzzy here. But basically, at the time of Alexander the Great, this is what the fourth late fourth century, late right. fourth century, mid to late fourth century. This is Rome is growing in power; it's expanding as a city state. Um, Alexander has those are certainly those are soldiers, <laughs> and they're not right. even citizens. Um, other states like Carthage is dependent. If it wishes to fight on land, it has to hire mercenaries. Correct. So the citizen soldier is by no means predominant in the Mediterranean. There are that is many, correct. Many other ways of martial power, martial life. Absolutely. And some of the first historians pay a lot of attention to these really old, famous empires like Egypt or the Assyrians or the Babylonians who uh, were monarchies. And there's there's very little that was Republican about them. And so they had prof something kind of like professional soldiers and the Hellenistic kings. So the ones that follow after Alexander in the late uh, fourth, early third centuries and on. They are a mixture of those models. They're more yeah, the Hellenistic king uh, is going to like an Antigonus, the one-eyed, is going to have uh, a, a large body of soldiers that are pretty much functioning uh, as uh, the Assyrian or the Egyptian armies had in a lot of ways. They're going to be more professional, and they're not. They'll have farms. They'll return to those, but uh, they're looking at war as a means to uh, gain. Uh, expertise, a means to gain uh, favor with the king, uh, and it's not uh, something that they would see as much as their civic duty as part of a Republican structure. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you this is my sort of fundamental question here. Does the army change because of changes in the Republic, or does the Republic change because of changes in the army? Because oh, it's, the, yeah. cha the, it's, the changes occur sometimes simultaneously or a little one after the other, and of course you're linking that very closely together because that's how essential the army is to the Republic, right? So could you, could you tease that out a little bit, explain why the army is essential to the Republic and vice versa? Right. Well, these are big questions for both the development of democracy in Greece and mm -hmm. the development of republicanism in Rome. And yeah. there are a lot of different answers or a lot of different theories as to why this happens. But I think you do have to see them as linked. And at least in the case of Rome, Rome, and I think this is why Rome is more important uh, than Athens when you're looking – one of the reasons why it's more important than Athens when you're looking at the concept of the citizen soldiers. They've got two, two ideas. We want to have organic growth that stems from the family farm. Uh, and we want to incorporate that into a Republican structure. And we also want to be more inclusive with citizenship. So if we can get more people involved in the political process in Rome, and then we can ask these uh, this bigger citizen body to serve in the armies, that means the bigger our republic gets, the more manpower we have. And Rome does this better than everyone else. It probably starts, if we're looking at chronology, in the period of the Roman kings, which is right before the Roman Republic begins in the late 6th century. There's a king who develops, it seems, some sort of assembly where he's telling people, look, you're not just a member of a tribe. Uh, you're not just a member of a nearby village. This is Rome. And we want you to be more a part of uh, the body that's defending the idea of Rome. We're not really sure what uh, all the details there because we don't have historians talking about it until uh, centuries after the fact. But I think we could say that by the end of the first century of the Republic, by 400, you've got a Republican 
constitution that's functioning in Rome that has transitioned clearly away from uh, a, a monarchy, and it has brought in so many more Roman farmers into the political process. And then it's asked these Roman farmers, you need to defend this thing that you have a political stake in. Mm -hmm. And that's what starts I don't want to get ahead of us here, but that's what starts that process from 400 to around 300, which I would say is the breakout century for the Roman Republic. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the pre-Republic briefly. Um, even the myth of Romulus, you argue, tells us something about something important about Rome and about um, early Roman warfare and the way that the Roman army than was. Um, so when is when is the myth of Romulus situated, if we we're going to put it in historic context? And what what is Rome at that time? Well, the traditional dates for Romulus are, they vary, 754, 752, 753, somewhere around there. Um, well, let's just take those traditional dates, because archaeology probably says that there are developments around Rome earlier than that, but you probably don't have a state uh, that's that's really functioning until at, at the earliest the, the the late eighth century and probably more sometime during the the seventh and then the into the sixth century. But the the stories about Romulus are really fun, and I think mm -hmm. that tells us a lot about what Republicans thought Romulus was supposed to represent. So mm -hmm. uh, just a couple of the stories. He is, uh, and th these two are linked, and they're probably the two most famous. He is a, a leader of a, a motley mix of mutts. There's mm -hmm. just bandits who attract to him, uh, all sorts of fascinating stories as to why, but uh, he is, he's left on the side of, of a river uh, of the Tiber with his brother Remus, and uh, they end up putting their grandfather in power, and then he comes to Rome, and he and his brother say, hey, let's found a city, and then what's he do? Well, he kills his brother. Why they're fighting over uh, a wall? There's, so we, right from the beginning, we have fratricide. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, he starts collecting all sorts of other people, which is kind of like him. Aren't don't seem to be the best sort of people, but they need wives. So what do you do? Well, none of the nearby fathers want us to take their daughters. Well, it's understandable. These guys don't seem to be very very civilized. And so, I mean, I'm a father of five. I, I would, certainly would not have wanted to marry my daughter off to a Roman. So what do you do? Well, you go to a nearby village. You get all the locals uh, inebriated, and then you steal all the virgins uh, right from under their noses, and then you take them back to Rome. Uh, well, it ends up working out. Uh, it sounds really awful, but uh, it, according to the story, the, the women are find this kind of charming. It's, there's something romantic about it. And we've got a mixture now of Sabines uh, and Romans. And what does this mean? Okay, well, it's a weird story, but what it means is Rome's inclusive. It's a, they're a mix. An Athenian was an Athenian was an Athenian. Uh, a Spartan was a Spartan was a yeah. Spartan. Uh, a Roman, he's a melting pot. And Rome has this ability right from the beginning. And you see it in all these stories about Romulus that, yeah, they've got problems. Yeah, they've got flaws. But they will include and bring in other peoples. Yeah. Uh, and that's very important to the beginning. It's, it's very Rome. important. I mean, the Athenian myth is that they literally come from the earth. I mean, that's the Theban myth as well, right? The, dra right. the Cadmus sows the dragon's teeth and the men spring up. And those are the those are the fathers of Thebes. So there's plenty of Mediterranean myths and not just Mediterranean that we come from this earth. We are of this earth. That's why we're unlike slaves. That's where unlike the Athenians are unlike medics. But Romans, their myths are we are on the board we're outliers <laughs> and we take right. we take in anybody yes uh, will become and become part of us it's a very interesting myth yeah um, 
what's his um, warfare like? I mean, he, he's ta he's basically got a band. He's got bandits. It's a sort of a it's like yeah. a, it's like a pirate band. They're like they're personally loyal to him. It is. So I think the best parallels I've heard described are something kind of like the Italian condottieri. Mm. These bands of sort of warlords, chiefs, essentially, that uh, collect around themselves clients. I mean, they're mm. powerful men, uh, and they've got uh, people who gravitate to them. And this is probably what the real beginnings of Rome look like. You put aside the legends, and you've got a bunch of chiefs from nearby villages or outlying areas. They come into Rome. They, they start unifying the city. They start clearing out. Uh, the swampy area that unifies the seven hills around Rome. And each of these, uh, some of these most important people have little bands of men. And the trick is, how do you get these little bands of men to stop thinking themselves as, we fight for a chief, or we, we fight for our tribe or our clan, to start thinking of, well, we're fighting for something that's a little more abstract. We're fighting for a republic. And that's what's going on during the Roman monarchy, is it's slowly developing uh, into uh, an idea, and it's taking on some sort of really primitive, some very rudimentary uh, elements of constitutionalism. So the Roman kings, they're not straight hereditary. I, I think that says something. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're these elective elements. And something else that's interesting about Romulus, soldiers love him. The commoners love him. But the senators don't. There's even one story that says the senators, they, they killed him when no one was looking. They carved up his body, uh, and then they hid it, and so everyone thought he disappeared. But that tells you right from the beginning, when you have this sort of constitutional structure, you're going to have tensions. Mm -hmm. What makes Rome great is they figure out, really from the beginning, during the monarchy, how do we, how do we start to manage these tensions? They, they ask those questions. So what's the traditional date for the beginning of the republic? It's 509 BC. Okay. And is that, is there any other attestation other than from, say, live, much later historians that this is the case? I mean, when do we start, do we find any dated laws that, um, subsequent to that or well we have some laws that are we, we have records of we don't actually have the laws themselves we mm -hmm. have records of them and, and there's general agreement from uh, the mid fifth century mm -hmm. we have some some older lists that are called the fasti that go back and they sort of list the first consuls the major events the triumphs mm -hmm. uh, that occurred so uh, there's a general consensus that we can't accept all the fanciful details like for example about uh, there's a lot of really great stories about the, the, the founder of Brutus. Maybe we shouldn't believe all those details, but uh, there's no reason to doubt that uh, he was one of the first people that was important in the founding of the Republic, which, yeah, sure, it occurred at 509, which incidentally was right around the time that Athens' democracy began as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> almost uh, almost to the year. Um, yeah. So uh, you make clear throughout the book that uh, Roman warfare is intimately linked with the Roman religion. Uh, these are both enormous concepts, and, and this is true of warfare really any place, arguably even right now, <laughs> warfare is linked with religion in ways that people don't notice. Um, but how did um, – you, you, very interesting comment. You say Roman's battles were justified by a painstaking legal understanding of the gods. Um, that makes Rome interesting and a little different. And what do you mean by that? Well, I like that you just start off by saying something about Roman religion is interesting because when most people look at Roman religion, uh, it, they think, good heavens, this is boring. Where are the exciting gods like it's Zeus? And very, get into it's all very confusing, but it's, it's also <laughs> right. all – what, what I think – What's interesting about Roman religion is that it's a very uh, – when you encounter it, even in Plutarch, 
it's just a very everyday reality, unlike right. all the uh, reading Hesiod or Homer. Um, right. It's banal. It's but it's it's every day. It's always and it's always moving. It's always part of the background, but it's com- therefore boring and then also confusing. Um, right. It, and a lot of the really fanciful elements in the the Greek mythology are going to are going to later be picked up on by the Romans, and then they're going to start applying them to Jupiter or Mars or, sure. or whichever the corresponding god is. But what I think is the most interesting thing about the Roman gods, because they're boring, there's something. Uh, they don't have the kind of personality that you would see in uh, in their Greek counterparts. But they're seen to be fair. Mm-hmm. They're seen to be just. They seem to care about uh, what happens with human beings. There's a very legalistic mm-hmm. uh, set of procedures that you have to follow with the gods. And so the Roman idea, and Cicero talks about this a lot. I mean, he's he's writing much later at the end of the Republic, but uh, I think he encapsulates the idea, which in some ways can be applied to the early days, that Romans thought the gods are fair and just. If we follow all the rules with the gods, uh, then we can be fair and just in our dealings with war. So, for example. If they felt they were wronged uh, by a neighboring people, they would uh, send a delegation to the neighboring people. And then it's the day before full-time ambassadors. A lot of times this isn't going to turn into – there's not going to be a peaceful resolution. So then the envoys come back and say, well, they didn't accede to our demand. So then the Romans deliberate in the Senate. The assembly then decides, OK, we're going to go to war. But then they have these sacred ceremonies. And you can't actually go to war until you follow all the rules about the sacred ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And a war doesn't actually begin until you've got one of these Roman priests go and throw a spear into Roman territory. And it this this – obsession with making sure they followed all the rules and making sure they did all the right things provides a sort of check, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily on Roman warfare, because everyone's going to fight all the time. You kind of have to in the ancient world. But it provides a check, however soft that check may be, on are we being just? Now, Cicero said, and he's he's a little rose-colored you know, when he's looking at Rome, but he thinks, look, the reason why we conquered the world is because we did so justly, and all we did was defend ourselves and our allies. That's a that's a pretty strong statement. It's uh, it's of course not entirely true, but it certainly is a noble sentiment. Mm-hmm. The we'll get to in just a second or a few minutes to the various religious rights um, involved with warfare, uh, other religious rights. But could we talk? Um, I, I just want to. This is jumping ahead. I think to the um, the uh, Samnites, the war with the Samnites. But there is the devotio. Um, you discuss, oh, it's the, um, it's the early, the earlier Fabius and the commander who, um, looking through my notes, who then, uh, basically sacrifices himself. Can you explain, right. can you explain the importance of the devotio? Um, because it, it's a very simple name. It doesn't take much right. Latin to figure it out. Devotion. Right. It, it covers a lot of stuff. It's a very, it's a very powerful and weird and profound idea. It is. Um, one of the coolest early stories about the devotio, which essentially it's, a, it's sort of a trade, it's a sacrifice, uh, mm-hmm. when the Gauls, you know, these terrifying Gauls, come, they swoop down into, into Italy. Uh, and the reason, in fact, and this tells you, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the mm-hmm. reason that Rome, the Roman author said that Rome ended up being invaded by the Gauls was because the Romans themselves violated the rules of war. They violated the sacred rules binding envoys, and their envoys fought against the Gauls. So even the Romans could say, yeah, we did wrong. We, we were not just. But these Roman Gauls then come in, and they, they come into the city. It's not very well defended. And you've got all these old men that are sitting there, 
And uh, the, the Gauls come in. They think, well, gosh, they, they look like statues. And they go up and they poke one of the guys. And he takes his cudgel and he smacks the Gaul over the head. And, what, and then the Gauls, of course, slaughter all these men. All these old senators, the most distinguished citizens, had said, we're going to stay in the city when it's being raided and sacked. And we're going to offer ourselves to the gods. And if the Gauls then kill us, the gods will in some way come back and uh, justify our sacrifice, and then there'll be vengeance that's wreaked on the Gauls. Well, the most famous example of this is this group of this aristocratic family. They're actually Plippian, mm-hmm. and so that means they're, a, they're not as distinguished as their patrician counterparts and it's the family of the uh, of the decii, decii right yeah publius decius moose and there are three of them three generations the father famously they're fighting a war against the latins so they're they're erstwhile allies uh around 340 and they're the he's they're losing the battle the romans are losing the battle and the father has a priest next to him. They go through some ceremonies, and he says, basically cries out, I'm dedicating myself uh, to the destruction of the enemy. He rides single-handedly into the enemy, knowing that he's going to have himself killed, uh, and this turns the tide of the battle. Well, this is picked up by the son. In fact, the son, in some ways, you, you got to hate to be this kid because – I mean. What your father did, what he represented, was huge. And if you don't follow the example of your father, you're, you're doing something wrong. And so he wants to be successful. He wants to be prestigious. But in the end, he unfortunately is always paired with this really, really impressive patrician by the name of Fabius. Mm-hmm. And so Fabius is constantly outshining him. And in the Battle of Centinum, Publius Decius Mus, the son, decides – I've got to get an early victory. So he charges multiple times with his cavalry into uh, the Samnite formation, and Fabius holds back. Fabius is fighting against the Gauls, and, and Publius Decius Moose wants to be the one who wins this battle. Well, he can't do it with cavalry charges. It's actually it's, – he was too uh, eager. Now it looks like the Roman armies are in trouble. So what ends up happening is he has to do what his father did. And so again, he calls on the priest. Again, he devotes himself to the gods, and it turns the tide of the battle. Uh, at least in the minds of that that part of the army, and Roman soldiers really believe this this demonstration of piety did something, and it's that belief that made the difference on the battlefield. So this is um, so this is the midst of of battle, offering oneself as a as a as a sacrifice. Yes, I mean, and and not only in battle, the the, the sack of Rome story of the sack of Rome shows that there's another way of doing it, but basically offer yourself offer yourself. Offering yourself willingly to the enemy in order to, to turn the hearts of the gods. Right. And the Romans would critique. So the Samnites, it's this other group of people that are in – they're just south uh, and east of Rome. They have the, their own federation. They have another ceremony where they sacrifice their own citizens. So you have citizens killing citizens. Mm-hmm. And they, the Romans say, no, look how awful that is. You don't, that's not what you should do. It should be self-sacrifice. Not sacrifice of your brethren, and so they critique it, and I think that says a lot about Roman republicanism. There's a strong element, uh, inspired by religious devotion, of self-sacrificing for the republic. Well, we'll get back to a few other of these um, religious rituals, uh, particularly as they're uh, connected to the agricultural year, because those are also very interesting. But um, everyone has always said, and, and you're no different, that the Romans are the great adapters, maybe, of human history. 
they are always uh, taking, uh, borrowing, and then uh, improving on whatever that is around them. Um, and it's sort of related to their immigration policy, when you think about it. Um, this mm-hmm. is They're always taking people from other places and making them Romans. Uh, likewise, um, they are next to the mysterious and powerful Etruscans. Are the Romans Etruscans? I, I, sh- I know it's a stupid question. I mean, I th- probably some of them were, given the, it, the origin story. It's not a stupid question because the Etruscans have uh, an influence over Rome. Scholars debate how much, but there's no question they had an influence. You've got several Etruscan uh, kings that come into – they become kings they in right. Rome, yeah. especially in the 6th century. So you're going to have some Etruscan elements in Rome itself, just like you're going to have Sabine elements. Mm-hmm. You're going to have Latin elements. It, once again, Rome is this kind of melting pot. So at what point by – in the um... – at what point does, is Rome uh, – this is a side issue, but what point is Rome more than just the city? When does it expand beyond the Seven Hills? Is that, is that in the Republic or in the Kingdom? Well, it begins at the end of the monarchy, okay. and it looks like Rome is – they've, they've got this really good relationship with their kinsmen, the Latins. They, they speak the same language. They have a, a lot of uh, shared affinities, shared religion, and the Roman kings kind of established a hegemony in the Latin plain. And what – arrests this, what stops it is the Republic, which sort of throws this momentum back. It halts it. And so the Republic's got a, a pretty bad century from around 500 to 400. Mm-hmm. They are uh, they're losing uh, as many battles as they're winning, but more importantly, they're just not winning a lot of battles. And so uh, it takes them about 100 years uh, as a Republic to start expanding once again. And it's when they conquer a, a site by the name of Vei. Uh, to the north of them, a major trade competitor, uh, an Etruscan city, which incidentally was not helped by other Etruscans. In fact, there are some Etruscans that are helping the Romans defeat Vei. It's when that happens uh, at the beginning. It's about a 10-year siege, if you accept those years. And when that happens at the beginning of the uh, 5th century, or excuse me, at the beginning of the 4th century, this is sets the stage for Rome to start expanding in that, that decisive breakout century of the 4th. Okay, back to this question of adaptation. The Etruscans uh, used hoplite armor. Um, the Romans used hoplite armor. Um, and what is that? Uh, th- does that mean also that Romans, the Roman army, at least at first, got together in the phalanx? And could you explain what a phalanx is uh, to those sure. of us who don't know? Sure. So a phalanx, well, for those of us who have seen either the 1960s uh, 300 Spartans or they've seen the, the Frank Miller's adaptation of the, the story of Thermopylae, it's you get a tight group of, of men and a democracy that are basically – or a republic are, are, are fighting as one cohesive unit. And you would put them all side by side. The, sh- the shield, the hoplon is where they get their name, the hoplite. They fight in a phalanx, which the phalanx itself is the unit fighting together. And you don't fight as an individual there. You fight as a unit. Your shield actually covers you and a part of the guy next to you. Mm-hmm. So if you become separated, uh, you're, you're probably going to get killed. And when you fall in battle, then the next person behind you or next to you needs to take that place. And there's not a lot of fancy tactics that go on here. It's mostly just pushing. But if you can maintain cohesion as a unit, you'll win, which is why the Spartans are the best fighters. Okay, so how does this, how does this translate into Italy? Well, we know in Italy, in the central areas of Italy, we have people starting to pick up hoplite equipment. 
the, the Corinthian helmet that people are familiar with covers most of the head. Uh, the uh, the bronze cuirass, you've got uh, the long spear, and then the, the hoplite shield. But here's the wrinkle. In Etruria, they pick up the equipment, but they don't pick up the Republican structure. Instead, the sort of kinship ties, the accumulation of wealth into a higher socioeconomic group uh, does not – those two things aren't broken. Mm-hmm. So in Athens, they really find ways to transcend those and pull everyone together into being an Athenian. It does not happen in Etruria. Instead, they keep monarchs a little longer than other people in Italy. They're using hoplite equipment, but it's aristocrats that are using this equipment. Mm-hmm. Well, Rome – and we don't – we're not certain. Rome may have actually used some other kind of equipment before they start adopting something kind of like a hoplite's equipment. Now, they fight in something that I think would be best described as that which is phalanx-like. So they're a band of men. They're fighting similar to a phalanx, but not exactly like the way an Athenian or a Spartan would have fought. But it's a – warfare is really small scale in the 5th century. It, it gets huge in the 3rd century for Rome. But it's pretty small scale. So we have bands of people in these phalanx-like formations, and then Rome stops fighting that way. And this is where we get to the adaptation, mm-hmm. and they start fighting in the mountains. Well, you can't fight the Samnites who are had this mountain – federation and a tight phalanx it just doesn't work so they start picking up uh, a, lo- a longer shield and they start using more javelins uh, sometimes they adapt those things it's possible they created the use of these and they find out okay it's better to fight in the mountains with a soldier who can fight as a unit but a, also a soldier who can fight individually and has this ability to move around and it's more flexible and that is really the beginning of a lot of changes uh, that begin this famous formation. It's called the manipular formation. It's basically a formation that looks like a checkerboard. And you've got small units, and they can function independently, but they're really, really flexible. That's the big thing. So they're, they're not bound together like the old phalanx. Another important adaptation that we have is when they take that city of AEE, People figure out right from the beginning, we can't sit through a long siege unless we're making people at home pay for the guys who are in the field so they can stay there over the winter. So they institute something probably at this time that's called the tributum, and that is a war tax, and that's how they're paying uh, to keep people in the field. That's a huge adaptation, and when you've got guys who can now not merely leave the farm for uh, the fighting season, but leave the farm for a longer period of time and stay for a year, or two years, or three years, or longer. Then we have these citizen soldiers who are a lot more flexible and adaptable. And that, I mean, that's just the beginning of the the adapt the process of adaptation that the Romans have uh, at the end of the the fifth and the fourth century. So let's talk a little bit more about citizen soldiers, since this is the heart of the book. Um, what were Roman farmers at the time at 509 BC? I mean, what how much did they farm? Uh, what, what was the size? What was a, a, a yeoman? A, I hate that typical Roman farmer. If, um, but what how, what was their acreage? Uh, what were they raising? Uh, did they have slaves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, the best term that to use, which is which is free of anachronism, which it's very nice. It also makes a lot of sense. It's called smallholder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's basically someone who holds a, a small plot of land. And it, it can kind of approximate the idea of the you know English yeoman farmer or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the smallholder 
uh, is probably over 90% of the population, well over 90% of the population. You have some urban craftsmen, merchants, or shippers, but this is, this is a fraction. Uh, the people, and the Romans themselves have very few people in, engaged in this kind of trade. That, that's more the Athenians. So well over 90% of the, of the fo- population is farming. The, what are they farming? Um, mostly wheat. The Mediterranean diets, probably at least 80% or so. Grapes, wheat, and olives. Grapes being turned into wine, olives being turned into olive oil. How much are they farming? Well, seven Ugera is uh, the minimum property qualification for uh, a uh, someone who's going to serve as a citizen soldier, as a legionary, uh, not merely just a light infantryman, but a legionary is going to fight in the legion, uh, and that's approximates to about four acres. Mm-hmm. today, which is why um, I, I fully intend to get the, my neighbor's property next to me, and that will make my acreage four acres. So I'll be a good Roman citizen soldier. And this is enough. There have been some really good calculations. This is probably enough to sustain a family. Mm-hmm. A family is going to be a little different. It's not the nuclear family today. It could be a little bigger. Uh, and that's the minimum. But you could have people who have 20, 30 Ugera. By the end of the Republic, you've got some problems because we have a lot more uh, land being held by a lot fewer people. So mm-hmm. this gets us to the question of slavery. Yeah. At the beginning, probably very few Romans owned slaves, but uh, and certainly not a lot of slaves, even if they owned them. Ancient slavery is different. It's mm-hmm. not like American antebellum slavery, which is something you really need to understand. But you also have to understand it still involves people owning people. So in this way, it's, it, it's just as problematic as, as moderns would think slavery is. The more Rome conquers the more they're going to get slaves because there's there's what you do in ancient warfare. If you sack a city, if you attack a city, if you can't come to terms, if you can't agree on something, if you can't make a treaty, uh, and you take a city by assault, there's basically two things that usually happen. You either kill everyone there or you sell them into slavery. So in this case, it's kind of this sick irony that it's better to be a slave uh, if you are fighting Rome and you lose. And that's if you if you resist. Oftentimes, they just incorporate you if you sort of went along with what was going on. Mm-hmm. So over the course of time, Rome starts gaining more and more slaves. This becomes a major problem sometime in the second century uh, if we buy what Plutarch says and some of the other Roman historians about the Gracchi, these famous uh, reformers. And they say, we're looking at Italy, and we see there are a lot more people that have a lot more wealth and a lot more slaves. There aren't any more smallholders. The armies that won the Mediterranean aren't uh, are, are going to be decreased because we don't have as many people that are just the average common citizen soldier with a small plot of land. Instead, you've got larger landowners. This is certainly true by the first century and probably true, although it's debated by the end of the second. But not having slaves means that your warfare is limited by the constraints of agriculture and by seasonal constraints. Um, right. When you have a slave society, you have often. I'm thinking of. I'm actually thinking of the Confederacy here. You have tremendous mobilization uh, in proportion to the male population. Something like I think 65 percent at one point in the Civil War, um, and that's attributable to being a slave society. Um, and I'm sure that was one of the advantages of slavery for a later Roman period as well, as they could mobilize so much of their free male population to go to war. Um, the early, if the early Republic doesn't have slaves like that, then they have to have a completely different way of doing war. Well, this is, this is the genius of the Roman Republic. 
the, what you end up having in the late republic is it's the increase of slaves that cause problems like slave revolts that's which justifiable yeah. problems yep. and they're also replacing the nature of how wars are being won mm -hmm. so the genius of the roman republic is they say okay we've got this cycle march we begin the year uh, we have our, our new consuls, our new magistrates take the office, and we, we go through these ceremonies. We have our citizen soldiers leave, but they need to come back by October, which is when uh, they need to be sowing next year's wheat. Well, they say, well, what if we take the life cycle and we change that – or excuse me, the annual cycle of how, what we do every single year, and we change that to a life cycle? And instead we say on average maybe around six years of a young male's life from around the age of 17 or so. Until his early 30s, we're expecting him to go out and fight wars that are further and further away. Mm -hmm. No one else comes up with this idea. But once again, it's one of these Roman adaptations. We want to keep the Republican structure. We have to keep our citizen soldiers, these guys who own a small piece of land, and they're going to defend it. That's what they fight for, their farm, which is a part of the broader republic. But we need them to be able to go fight in further places that take a longer amount of time. So let's have them do this for a period. And then they come back and they return to the farm. Then they, usually they get married a little later and they raise children. Then they're statesmen. Sometimes they're generals. And then uh, they're going to have kids and they're going to train their boys to do the same thing. So Rome keeps the citizen soldier idea all the way down to 42 BC. The last armies that are fighting for the Republic are citizen armies. And it's not until the death of the Republic that you have the ending of that idea. And that's that's impressive that Rome is basically able to achieve this empire using citizen soldiers. At first, though, it, when they're fighting, I guess, just in the Latin plain um, and their uh, the warfare is related to the spring, summer, um, autumn cycle, uh, they've got the things that are agricultural religious ceremonies are also military religious ceremonies. Right. Could you explain the, the tubalustrium? Um, as well as the uh, the armillustrium, there's the two sort of interest, really interesting ceremonies uh, to my mind. Right. So uh, it's probably best to begin here with Mars. Everyone thinks sure, of Mars, sure. and they think of uh, you know Mars is the uh, he's the the god of of war. Well, in in Rome, he's the patron god, but you know the the he fathered. The Romulus and Remus in Roman mythology, but he's also the god of agriculture. And you really, to understand Rome and Roman religion, you have to understand that that's very important. Yeah. Mars is just as much the god of war as he is the, uh, or just as much the god of agriculture as he is the god very, of war. Very different than Ares. Correct. Right. And this the Roman year begins. With this month that has all this personality with March and mm -hmm. the Republic, that doesn't change until uh, later, uh, very deep into the Republic. And so, what you have are these two ceremonies that sort of bookend in the early Republic uh, going to war. And it's where you have the Salian priests, they beat their shields, and they're a little obscure. We're not entirely certain how they function, but we know there's involves these priests who are dressed up like soldiers. They're beating their shields. They go through some sort of cleansing ceremony. And this is what transitions the Roman citizen soldier into becoming uh, – or the Roman citizen farmer, I should say, into becoming the soldier. And then in the early years, he would go fight on campaign. And then he, he needs to get back home because he needs to harvest – or uh, he needs to, excuse me, sow the next year's crop in October. So they go through another uh, – the Armalustrian. They go through the, another ceremony, which is where you probably sacrifice some sort of war horse 
the October horse. They sacrifice this. They cleanse the weapons. They store them away. So and this is really very, important. Very powerful idea. It is. And they, it's reintegration. This is something that yes. modern republics don't do enough. Right. You've got to reintegrate the soldier back into peace. Time. I, I so underline this. Into life. I put in my notes like PTSD. Um, yeah. this, this is a way of, I mean, blood soils. <laughs> uh, blood makes different. Um, so at least in this society, the idea of the pure, the ritual purification of the weapons, uh, because the weapons have to go back inside the house. They have to go right. near the hearth. So now they're being put back there after being cleansed. And the person, the, the citizen soldier, yeah, that's right. They're going back to being a citizen farmer. They're being reintegrated in society. That right. the, the blood that they have experienced has not separated them from their community. Uh, right. And that's at least there's a there's a witness to that. And the whole community agree as it were agrees to that. That you're not right. you're not apart from us. Right. And even thing. when and even when Rome is fighting uh, in the third and second centuries farther away, you still have the consuls going through these ceremonies with their armies, cleansing the weapons before the battle, cleansing the weapons after them, cleansing the army. You still maintain these Republican ideals of the citizen soldier, even if it takes them a little bit longer to get back to that farm. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that is the big, when, when do, um, certainly by the first Punic War, by the Samnite War, are, are, are young men now four, six years away from the farm? To serve they can be yeah by that yes i mean you could have they they'll serve probably on average this is this is debated but probably on average around uh six years polybius said it could be as many as 15 maybe even more that seems to be abnormal mm -hmm. but uh sometimes they're going to be gone for years at a time and the roman farm has to figure out how to manage the absence of these soldiers and, and they do i mean it's part of the the it's part of that adaptation that uh the, the shift the evolution of, of how these citizen soldiers are still able to function it's during the same night wars that this probably begins mm -hmm. because they're fighting uh much farther from rome and then when we get to the third century I mean, they're fighting in places far away spain uh southern france North Africa, and the reason that Rome can take on Carthage, which is very different, it's a republic, but they fight with mercenaries and they're professionals, they have generals who are brilliant, uh, like Hannibal. Uh, the reason that they can take on Carthage is because of what they developed from 400 to 300 uh, BC. So that by the time they encounter the major powers in the Mediterranean, like Carthage or the Ptolemies or the Macedonians, They've already got a very different way of doing government, a very different notion of civic service, uh, public sacrifice that gives everyone a run for their money and no one can figure out how to beat it. Mm -hmm. um, this is why then you refer to 390 to 298 as the decisive century, right? It's because that's when they're – this is after that century of military defeat or just breaking even, uh, being right. pushed back a little bit. Uh, they finally get things together and then they begin to create this, at least the way Ed Watts describes it in Mortal Republic, um, Pyrrhus, for example, as a sort of representative of uh, Greeks who consider themselves civilized and Romans are barbarians. Pyrrhus just can't figure out the Romans out. They are like a, a black box to him. Um, he he can't understand the, these barbarians who are not barbarians at all. Uh, he's he's thinking like a Greek, right? Yeah, right. How in the world could they do this? Yes. This is Polybius, also a Greek. Right. He he, he knows Plato. He he knows his Aristotle. He's read about republicanism. He says all these all these ideas about republicanism that are out there that we haven't really been able to achieve. I, I, I'm looking at Rome and 
they, they did it. Mm-hmm. And so that's his big question. How did they do it? And so even Polybius himself, he focuses on the Punic Wars, but he has to acknowledge the things that started really with the Gallic sect. That's why he, he makes reference to these things. He mentions the Battle uh, of Centina because these are critical. So by the time you've got Romans encountering these other powers, it's already a republic with its own distinctive traditions uh, and cultures, and it can it brings these into the Mediterranean. And most importantly, this big republic that is so inclusive with citizens, and it has this broader federation that has these unique treaties with uh, all of its different allies, is so flexible, so inclusive, that it's got an enormous manpower base. So you can defeat a Roman army, and Hannibal does this over and over again. Crosses the Alps, he defeats three Roman armies, kills 120,000 people, uh, probably wipes out 15% of the Roman uh, male population, and yet he, he can't win. Why can't he win? Because you can kill a Roman soldier, but you can't kill the Roman citizen. He, there's just too big of a supply. There are too many people who believe in the idea of the Roman Republic. Even if they're fighting as an ally, they still think the idea of the Roman Republic is a much better idea than any of these other competing ideas that are in the Mediterranean. Um, we've you've moved up to the second Punic War there. Um, I don't want to get into all the details of it. I don't want to get details, but I, I want to do just put a pin on two previous wars, um, the Gallic Wars, which seem to have an outsized importance in the Roman imagination. I mean, all the way up to Augustine's City of God um, right. is, is looking back at the, the sack of Rome. That's a sort of a, but what are, what's the importance of the Gallic Wars briefly? And what's the importance of the Samnite Wars? Uh, and when were they, both of them, uh, just to, you know, educate us? Right. So the, the wars against the Gauls, they really begin with a series of raids, and there's this devastating raid. It's, it's almost, in our minds, it would be like the September 11th, I think, mm-hmm. is, is the best yeah, parallel I, I can right, come yeah. up with. There's like these kind of terrorists that come in and they, they sack the city. This happens at 390. And the reason it's so important to Augustine is Rome doesn't get sacked again by a foreign power until 410 BC. So we've got 800 years. 80, yeah. Right or yeah, four ten um, A.D. So you've got these eight hundred years where there's no uh, there's no foreign sack of the city. So it hadn't happened since three ninety. They mark that day in history. I think it's fifteen quintillus of July as a black day. It's a day you don't do business. Hmm. So that that stuck in the Roman mind. And the way they fought was very different. There there's possibility they fought naked or partly naked. That could have just been a ceremony, uh, which uh, even a ceremony would ha- uh, would have power. They're very, uh, they're usually taller, a little bigger. They're very different. They speak a different language. They're not f- uh, from Italy originally. Uh, the Celts just are, are, are sort of mysterious to Romans. So I think it's the otherness that also uh, fascinates and intimidates the Roman mind. When we usually, the, the Gauls are going to pop up again and again. Mm-hmm. There's a huge battle that's fought against them when there's this pan-Italic alliance against the Roman Federation. And this is what brings in the Samnites and the Gauls fighting with the Etruscans and the Umbrians <laughs> against the Roman Republic. And it's basically the last-ditch effort. They don't really understand it at the time, but they know something important is happening. And this is probably the biggest battle that ever been fought on Roman soil. I talk about this in the book. It's the Battle of Centinum. Mm-hmm. And in this battle— This is where uh, Decius gave himself that's up. That's correct. Right? This is the second Decius who, Decius, who right. has the, uh, the the Devotio Deciana. And this is uh, through— Decius' counterpart, uh, Fabius Maximus, it's the the older Fabius Maximus, uh, shrewdly figures out how to get the Umbrians and the Etruscans not in the battle. But that means they're fighting the Samnites and 
uh, the Gauls. And this is the last big effort by the Samnites. The Gauls will pop up here and there, and that'll continue. But the Samnites uh, are have been fighting for control of central Italy. They've got a confederation. It's it's more tribal. It's more rural uh, in the sense that it's it's out in the mountains and they don't have this like center site of, uh, like Rome does. And this is their last effort to try to win. And it's Rome's ability to defeat the Gauls who focus on big, heavy uh, uh, infantry charges and then use the use of chariots to terrify people. And the Samnites, who are probably using these longer shields and javelins and these very long battles, which last six, eight hours, maybe even longer. Do you think it's that's not like a big clash? Do you think that's accurate? A six or eight hour long I think battle? it because there's that's a, that's there a very ways. tiring battle. There must be a lot it of rest is. periods. I, I, it, well, there are. That's the difference. If you yeah. take a Greek phalanx, I mean, you two bodies clash together it's like football it's just yeah. it, it's it, it's over but a battle when you're throwing javelins you're pulling back you're maybe used to fighting in more hilly terrain this is going to look a little more like baseball so it's going to be slower it's going to it's going to be more punctuated uh and this is what the battle of centinum looks like at least on the right and fabius says well let's let's not let's wear down the samnites over a long period of time and decius is the guy who tries to fight the Gauls the way the Gauls want to be fought. Let's get it all over with right at once and it doesn't work out well. But when the Romans win the Battle of Centinum, they defeat the Gauls, so these people that terrify them. They defeat the Samnites, the last uh, major opponent in Italy, and now you've got Rome at the head of the largest confederation alliance of peoples in uh, Italy, and that's what sets the stage for the 3rd century in the Punic Wars. Mm-hmm. Um do you, I, I don't recall this in, in the book, but it's always seemed to me there's an interesting contrast to be made uh, between the soldier and the warrior, um, which is interesting in the, in the modern army. As you know, there's a lot of talk about being warriors. I suspect that has a lot to do with the surrounding culture. Um, but in Rome, at least, um, in the history of the Roman Republic, soldiers always kill warriors. Sure, you could see it that way. There's... I like the contrast that you bring in with the, like for example, in the modern United States. Yeah. There's, there's, if you go into the military, there's the warrior code. You memorize sure, the warrior sure. code. You are a warrior. It's your right. vocation. It's your business. And Polybius talks about this. There's the Romans. Well, what are they fighting for? Well, the, the Carthaginians, they, they hire their fighters, got mm-hmm. very you know, capable generals if you've got if you've got someone like Hannibal. And they get this amazing combination of some very, very talented mercenaries together. And this is kind of a warrior class. And mm-hmm. the, the Macedonians have their own version of the warrior class. Whereas the Roman says, no, no, we have a class of people who are farmers and then they're citizens and then they're soldiers. And Polybius says, this is what makes the difference. Because when it comes down to it, yeah. uh, on the battlefield, in the heat of battle, why are you? Why do you stay? What makes you stick around? And maybe honor is just not enough. Maybe you have to have more than honor. Maybe you have to have you have an even bigger idea. And for the Roman, it's I'm fighting for my farm. Yeah. I'm fighting for my kids. I'm fighting for the ability to come home and have kids. Yeah. And I'm right. fighting for other farms uh, that are a part of this republic. Believe this is very clear. There's this entire culture that celebrates this, and they say. This is what honor actually is. It's not merely being a warrior, mm-hmm. but it's defending the idea of the farm and the idea of the republic. Yeah, it's not that. I mean, wait, this is a nice segue. It's not that um, Republican soldiers are not interested in honor and glory in the way that modern American soldiers um, either are genuinely uh, offended by or pretend to be offended by. I mean, it's a very interesting cultural moment 
when modern soldiers say, well, I, that medal isn't really for me. You know, it's for my buddies. You know, I, I didn't really deserve it. That's a very new thing. I mean, no, nobody in the American Revolution would have said that. Um, and certainly no Roman would have said that. Um, they didn't mind the glory at all. They liked. Oh no! They liked they, having. They it. love it. They liked having the even in the Republic, the legions liked having their right their representations of a victory. Um, Absolutely, and, and, you've got a you've got a ceremony called the triumph. Yeah, and this, this is a jealously protected and sought after right where a, a commander could come home after a victory. And he would ride on a chariot. Uh, they would show all the spoils of war, the slaves. Uh, they would. He would have some handpicked troops that had been uh, prestigious in the bat in the battle. And everyone likes to see this. Yes. But again, Polybius stresses yeah. Roman triumphs and Roman funerals always place this in the broader context of its civic service. Mm -hmm. That's why the triumph is so important. That's why the funerals of distinguished men are so important because we're celebrating the idea of sacrifice and civic service, especially on the part of the leading states. So this is a, lit this is a liturgy. This is a, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you make an interesting observation when discussing the Punic Wars and that we discuss Roman discipline a lot, <laughs> but that Roman armies, Roman citizen soldiers mutinied a lot as well. And that needs to be understood and explained. So uh, what what do Roman citizen soldiers mutiny about? What uh, they're, they're engaged basically in a Republican give and take with their commanders, um, right? Is that is that what you're getting at? They are. And Athenian uh, soldiers would be the same way. Yeah, uh, sure. You, you, it, you could see this with Greek hoplites, but um, Xenophon talks about this. But, uh, but we have a mythology of the Roman as the decimation, you know. We do. The, the crucifixion. We've got this ruthless, you know, sort of, we don't think of Roman soldiers as also like, say, hey, hey, you know, Flavius Maximus, just like back, back off there a little bit there. You know? So... I think the best way to understand this is, okay, where does all the training begin? Well, yeah. the training begins on the family farm. Cato talks about, what do I train my boy to do? I, I, I teach him history, teach mm -hmm. him how to read and write. He's an aristocrat. He, he could do that. He knows how to read and write. Uh, but what, do you, what else does he teach him? How to throw a javelin, how to swim, how to endure heat and cold, uh, how to box. He teaches him all the things you need to know. More importantly, how to follow orders, but also – how to be a citizen who participates in politics and has a will of his own. And so this is the first element of the Roman Republic. It's on the family farm. And that boy knows when I grow up, it's going to be my farm. It's going to be my little domain. And that's, that's hardwired into the Roman psyche. So when they go out and campaign, you've got this obsession for the Romans in dueling. You see a lot of dueling you know, in Homer. Uh, you don't see as much dueling when you're talking about uh, the the wars of the Greek democracy. No, but in Rome, they're obsessed really? with uh, with dueling. There's all these people that have gone back, and you can if you're the commander who has uh, killed the enemy commander in war, you receive the special honors. And very few commanders have actually done this, but they have a list of all these commanders who've actually defeated the Rome the the enemy commanders in battle. And the younger Roman soldiers, they want to do this. They want to fight this way. So that's not that does not comport with our my idea of communitarian Roman warfare is this sort of very individualistic dueling with the uh, the enemy. That has to be both. Remember, uh -huh. Republican warfare must always have tension, 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 tension. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be the individual who can duel, who knows what he wants, uh, who if he doesn't get paid or he thinks what we're doing is horribly unjust, they'll mutiny. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. But you also have the guy who knows he's been taught by his father to obey. 
He knows that the consuls have their authority, that he put their authority on them, that they need it. And if they break discipline, they'll be shamed in public, or if they are sleeping on guard, they will be stoned by everyone else. There's a strong sense of communal discipline, but there's also a strong sense of independence. And Rome has this ability to manage that, which means when they fight, for example, uh, the uh, Macedonians in the second century, you have Romans, we don't even know their names, Roman junior officers at the Battle of Cunoscephali, that he breaks off a contingent on his own initiative and hits the flank of uh, Philip uh, Philip V's army, and that decides the battle, and which ends up defi- deciding the war. Why? Because he functioned as a unit. But uh, when the time came, he took that individual a body of men that he was a part of, and he had them function independently. The same thing happens on a, on a micro scale in the Battle of Pydna when they're fighting really the last Macedonian monarch. And you've got this terrifying phalanx of now pikemen. They're not just hoplites, but they're these really long, terrifying pikes. And it's kind of like trying to engage a porcupine. Well, they push back the Romans. Well, then what ends up happening is the terrain makes that very inflexible phalanx start to separate. And I think this, there are two different accounts, but the one that makes more sense and is the, is the older account is that the Roman soldiers themselves see the gaps in the line, and they know exactly what to do. They take their shield that covers their whole body, so mm-hmm. not like a pikeman or a hoplite. They take their gladius, which is very good for close hand-to-hand combat, and like a spear, which is going to be a little farther away and you want to use as a unit. And they get in, they start flooding into the gaps, and the individual Roman legionary, who's given twice as much space to fight in, as a Macedonian phalangite, he's more than a match for these fearsome, uh, legendary Macedonian soldiers who end up losing the battle because of that individual initiative. Got to have the, got to maintain the cohesion, but you also be able to, need to be able to excel as an individual. Towards the end of the Republic, we have the reforms of the um, of Marius, the dictator Marius. Well, he was consul for six years, was or longer. Ends uh, up being consul for seven years. Seven years, Marius. Mm-hmm. So um, Marius, his reforms usually by historians are seen as really important, and and maybe what led to the empire or blah blah blah. You don't see them as that important. Um, how did they change the army, and why don't you think it was that important? Um, they, they are important, but you're right. I, I think we need to emphasize a, a couple of important counter arguments. So Marius is an outsider. This is about 100, 100 BC. Right. He, yeah, he's an outsider. He's kind of like the Donald Trump of his day. He's an outsider, rough and tumble. You know, he's gonna, he's gonna sort of fix things. And Romans like this because some of their aristocrats have been bungling campaigns. And he enters the scene and he's consul for uh, six years, pretty close together. Mm-hmm. Uh, his seventh consulship only lasts for a little while, and that's much later in his life. And he's got a lot of time to start instituting some changes. Uh, he changes the weapons that they use. He standardizes the equipment. He changes the supply train a little bit. But the really important change that he makes is he says that we're going to lift the property qualification and we're going to allow volunteers to come serve. Okay, now that's what's important. And Plutarch makes a big deal out of this. He mm-hmm. says he's violating the customs of the ancestors. You have to be you have to have a stake in the political mu- community before you can fight for it. Otherwise, you're going to be loyal to men and you're not going to be loyal to the republic. Plutarch's on to something, but the Republic, because of the problems we've talked about, more mm-hmm. conquests, influx of slaves, fewer smallholders, the Republic had already lowered the property qualification. And you'd already had instances where 
volunteers uh, had been allowed to serve. What it seems like Marius does is he standardizes this. And with the other changes, standardizing the equipment, he makes – he regularizes a little more volunteers coming into the army. So citizen soldiers are still going to serve all the way down to the last battle of the Republic, which I would say Philippi is Philippi. But Marius makes a very important change because what happens when you've got a volunteer who has no stake in the community? He has no stake uh, as – he doesn't have a farm. He doesn't really have – the Republic he hasn't seen this given him anything. But he's got a commander who's going to take him out on campaign and give him the ability to earn lots of spoils or come back with some slaves. Well, who's that guy going to be loyal to? Is he going to be loyal to a Marius or a Seller or a Pompey or a Julius Caesar? Or is he going to be loyal to the Republic? And that's a tension that is in the Republic that starts getting too intense. Mm -hmm. And eventually, it's going to be very destructive uh, by the time we get to Julius Caesar. You described the speech of Legastinus. Um, what is it and why is that important? How does that relate to that? I think I want to close our ancient survey with that speech. Uh, because right. it's, it's sort of setting us up for what's going to, to happen afterwards. So Spurius Ligustinus has this speech. Whether it's historical or not, I don't think there's any reason to doubt it. It makes sense. But he's got this speech where he uh, – who, who is he? He's a, he's a centurion, uh -huh. and he's, he's had a very small plot of land, one Ugarum. So remember, it takes seven to uh -huh. be a citizen soldier. So he volunteered to fight, probably not during the Punic Wars. It's, this is after. Uh -huh. And uh, he's going to – he's by the time he gives the speech, he's been – he's over 50. But he has served for 22 years. Wow. He's got one one wife, no dowry. And this is the big mystery about the story. He's got eight kids. How in the world do you have time to have eight kids? <laughs> we don't know. But he has received 34 uh, awards for great acts, six civic crowns. He partook in a triumph. And he gets up in front of uh, – he gives a speech. He's allowed to give a speech by the consuls to tell all of his fellow centurions, don't ask for things. Just be ready to serve. So it's a very Republican kind of speech, but look at his life. Yeah. He's a volunteer. He has earned a living basically from war. He's got eight kids, six of whom are sons, two sons-in-law. How are these got these guys going to look for uh, future awards? What is they're going to be, kind of become military men like Spurius Legastinus? You see a lot more of this in the second and then into the first century. They're called military men in the Latin. And uh, this is a, an increasing sense of professionalization. It's a good Republican speech, but his life says something isn't working the way it used to in the Republic. Just to sum this up, um, we've had three people now on the podcast uh, in 100 plus episodes talking about the end of the Republic. Um, so when I talked to Barry Strauss, he was like just shaking his head. No, the Republic could not be – Cicero could not save the Republic. By the time, by uh, Caesar's time, by Caesar's time of Caesar's career, the Republic was beyond saving. Um, Edward Watts makes a very strong point in Mortal Republic that republics exist because of the force of will of, of the citizens. Uh, nevertheless, uh, structurally, he would say that after the Gracchi, um, no one could serve in Roman public life without the expectation that their life or property might not be in danger. After that point, um, the, the death of the second uh, Gracchi brother. Um, you seem to think that the Republic still was salvageable at a much, even within Caesar's lifetime. Is that is that correct? I mean, is this the third sort of third opinion? 
I think it's possible. So there are some there. There's a group of scholars who said, "Hey, we need to we need to at least push this down to Caesar." I think you, it's too early to say after the Gracchi it's over. Uh, this is later Roman historians have thought that. Look, here here's my standpoint. The last citizen soldiers who are fighting at the Battle of Philippi, they don't think it's over. Right. That that matters. The speeches that are given to us. Uh, which which seem at least the kernels of them uh, to be, uh, you know, to have kernels of truth. Uh, the speeches that are given to us by Cassius, uh, who's the who's the really great Republican. It's Shakespeare makes it Brutus, but it's, it's Cassius is the guy who is is the last great citizen commander. He says, "Look, what are we fighting for, man? We're fighting against tyranny. We're fighting to keep our Republican way of life." And on the other side, we've got Antony. And Octavian, they're fighting for a different model. We've seen that model. Caesar, you liked Caesar. Some of you served under him, but you can't like that he set up a tyranny. Now, it just so happens that uh, Cassius and those citizen soldiers all died. They lost. Mm. But what if they had won? We don't know what would have happened. And more importantly, the men were motivated to fight for Cassius. And then they're also – they push Brutus to fight uh, against Antony and Octavian for the reasons that Cassius uh, and Brutus had come to represent, which was a last stand for the Republic. The Republic does not go without a fight. It goes down fighting hard. Was it inevitable? I think as a historian, we have to be sketchy. We have to about, hate that. We have to hate that. We word. have to hate the 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 veneer of inevitability. Yeah. I will grant this, and I think this is important. I think the public life of the spirit that had bound together the Republic of Rome was fracturing, mm-hmm. and I think there's this point at which, when that happens, is really hard to reclaim that. Cicero is doing his best to try and revivify the public life of the spirit but he ends up getting murdered brutus and cassius commit suicide the republican citizen soldiers and all the republican commanders are just slaughtered at and after the battle of philippi and it's over i think it's over then and not before this is um a not a book that's merely about the importance of the army for the republic or the republic for the army this is a book that you actually believe this is important for our present moment in 2019 um why let me start off with an analogy okay so let's say you got you got two groups of people you're going to put these two groups of people you're going to teach them how to play baseball you put separate and put both groups, you give them bats, balls, bases, put them in a field, give them a basic set of rules. Um, team B, that's all they get. Team A, they get all that, but then they also get the winners of the World Series. And they show them how to play, they teach them how to play. They both get the same amount of time, but one has the World Series winners. They got the Red Sox showing them how to play. Now, Team A and Team B then play each other after that. Who do you think is going to win? Well, that's what that's the purpose of history. Polybius says that there are two kinds of people. There are people who are fools and learn from their own mistakes, and there are people who are wise and they learn from the mistakes and successes of others. History is the great teacher. And the Roman Republic, they're the World Series winners for ancient republicanism. Maybe for 
all of the world's republics. So I think that we should learn from the World Series winners. I think they've got a lot to teach us. And as Americans, that's a really, really, really important point because we are specifically uh, explicitly founded on so many things that come from Rome. We have a Senate. We have committees. We have a mixed government that has these monarchic elements, democratic, uh, aristocratic. Uh, we have a Republican government that has all these checks and balances. Polybius says this is the first time checks and balances have ever been applied. It's here in Rome. John Adams says, you want to understand republicanism? The number one voice, it's not Montesquieu, uh, it's not uh, Blackstone. The number one voice you need to have, the best encapsulation you need to hear, it's Polybius because he's talking about the Roman Republic. So early Americans said, we're making a new and better kind of republic like Rome. So I think that means as Americans, we need to see what made us tick at the beginning. All these values that are so important, citizen soldiering, civic sacrifice, mixed government, the specific institutions, having an expanded republic, federalism, all these things are copied from the Romans. And the role models that, that are supposed to represent who we are, Cincinnatus, Camillus, uh, Brutus, all these, the Quintus Fabius Maximus, everyone says, George Washington is just like that. John Adams, you're like Cicero. They were so inspired by this, and I think we should learn from the founders, and we should learn from the people that the founders thought were so important. And in doing so, we'll figure out, okay, here's some mistakes that republics can make that we should try to avoid. Here's some things we could learn and to get ourselves out of our own situation, our own problems that uh, we've created. And uh, that's, that's no small motivation. So more specifically, you're arguing that what we can learn from the Romans about the, the citizen soldier is a republican institution that uh, must and ought to be and must be preserved, right? Is that, is that fair? I think so. You know, in the, in the, right after the end of the Punic Wars, you've got 19% of citizens in the field serving. We've got less than half percent in the United States of citizens serving today. Um, I mean, how, how committed are we to republicanism? Do we think civic virtue and civic sacrifice are important? And if we don't, what's going to bind us together? What's going to allow us to make compromises? What's going to make us share in uh, the sacrifices of our fellow citizens? And I, I think military service is one of the most important ways that we can do this. And it just needs to be a broader portion of the population. The alternative is uh, that we abandon uh, the coercive arm of the state over to an elite group of um, politicians and warriors. And that's that's asking too much of our soldier citizens. It's not asking enough of ourselves. You, In fact, you conclude the book, if the way we fight wars has changed, if the price of civic participation is so much cheaper, and if life and death are no longer on the line, then the way we understand peace has changed as well. Does the citizen of a modern republic who authorizes war but is unwilling to fight it have more respect for peace or less? I, I won't ask you to comment on your own words. So that, 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 kind of, that kind of, I I'm sure I'll almost end there, but I want to uh, get to something autobiographical. Um, why did you write this book? It's, a, it's when, an interesting story that I can tease out from the introduction and from the acknowledgments, but how did it happen? Right. Um, 
when I was in at Texas A&M, I took a class in the Roman Republic and just fell in love. I read Cicero, Livy, Polybius, and thought, wow, their thoughts on republicanism are, are impressive. At uh, the same time that that was happening, uh, September 11th happened. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I need to do something about this. Yeah. I wanted to be a historian, so I wanted to have my career as a citizen. You know, I don't have to be a farmer. I, can, I could be a historian. So for eight years, I went into uh, – did my grad school, but I always thought I should be doing more. And Polybius says, you want to be a historian, especially a military historian? Well, you need to get out there and, and show that you've got some experience. And those words haunted me, and September 11th haunted me. So I thought, I really don't know anything. I need to go get some experience. And that experience was really, really important. I um, I do? went – well, I, I joined. I went to basic training, which is probably more enlightening than five years of grad school. <laughs> I mean, because you're around, you know, 18 year olds, some of whom are good heavens, difficult to work with, and some of whom are inspiring. Mm-hmm. And you think, good heavens, they're loyal, they're dutiful, they really believe in the United States, they really believe in doing uh, what the, what they're ought to in the community. And then I ended up going to OCS, became an officer. Uh, I just got in the, the experience that Polybius is talking about. You were in the army for this. I was. I was deployed to Afghanistan. You know, you see Afghanistan. It's not like it's the Battle of the Bulge. There can be really intense moments, but um, there's it's a lot of more like police and intelligence action mm-hmm. that was going on at the time that I was there. Um, and so I saw combat. I saw I experienced these things, and I think what it did was it just broadened my horizons and, and bettered my perspective on uh, what does it mean to be a republic? What are the complications of being in a republic? And what's it mean to leave your family when mm-hmm. you come back home, and you've got a kid who was born uh, during the time that you were deployed or right before? And the kid doesn't know you. They don't understand who you are. Your older kids, they don't really know why you left. So you feel that tension. And you feel the frustrations that a soldier might feel. That uh, that kind of knowledge was, I think, the experience that Polybius was saying. You really need to have that steel, uh, otherwise, you're just you're not going to be as good as you want to be. My guest today has been Steel Brand. He is the author of Killing for the Republic: Citizen Soldiers and the Roman Way of War, which, as you hear this, is being published by. Johns Hopkins University Press. Steele, thank you so much for being a part of Historically Thinking. Thanks, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.